Hi, and welcome to The Hidden Crime, an interview miniseries on human trafficking. I'm your host, Jillian Lopez. Throughout the course of this series, you will learn what human trafficking is, how it can occur, who is at risk of being trafficked, what is the general scope of human trafficking in the United States and around the world, what is currently being done to combat human trafficking, and how you can help. I recorded this podcast series as a part of my senior project. My senior project's main focus is raising awareness for human trafficking. I started this project because I felt human trafficking is an issue that is not talked about often enough, especially in communities where people are vulnerable to it. To give people a better understanding of what human trafficking is and what the real scope of the issue is here in the United States and around the world, I conducted a series of interviews with members of the anti-trafficking movement. Human trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receiving of persons by improper means, such as fraud, force, or coercion, in order to exploit them for forced labor or commercial sex acts. There are three common types of human trafficking, sex trafficking, forced labor, and debt bondage. Sex trafficking involves the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of people by coercive or abusive means for the purpose of sexual exploitation. Forced labor is any labor or service which people are forced to do against their will under threat of punishment. Almost all slavery practices or human trafficking practices contain some element of forced labor. Debt slavery or bonded labor also known as debt bondage, is a person's pledge of labor or services as security for the repayment of a debt or other obligation where there is no hope of actually repaying the debt. Victims of human trafficking may be forced to do the following activities, among others. Domestic servitude, agricultural work, manufacturing, janitorial services, hotel services, construction, health and elder care, nail and hair salons, prostitution, and strip club dancing. Throughout the duration of this series, you will be hearing the terms human trafficking and modern slavery. These terms essentially mean the same thing and are therefore interchangeable. According to the International Labor Organization, human trafficking is roughly a $150 billion a year industry. There are many conflicting reports about the number of people being trafficked each year globally. The estimates can be anywhere from 20 million to 50 million people. However, the true number of people being trafficked may never be known, mainly due to the fact that trafficking can be very difficult to identify, and many cases are never reported. According to the Global Slavery Index's 2016 country study, there are roughly 57,700 people living in modern slavery in the United States. On top of that, roughly 14,000 to 17,000 people are trafficked into the United States each year. The Global Slavery Index also reported that about 27.5% of the country are vulnerable, is vulnerable to human trafficking.
human trafficking affects everyone and anyone can be trafficked. Any race, any age, any socioeconomic status, men and women and children alike. My first guest knows this all too well. With a master's in public health under her belt and nearly 20 years of experience in the human trafficking field, Sherry Harris is a program specialist at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in the Office of Trafficking in Persons. As Ms. Harris imparts her knowledge of the subject of human trafficking, be mindful of the story she relates about her time in the trafficking field. Also, keep in mind of her use of the term survivor. This term is very important in the anti-trafficking movement because of how it empowers those who have overcome the situation of them being trafficked. I also wanted to note that Ms. Harris is my senior project consultant. Welcome, Ms. Harris, and thank you for being on today. Thank you. Look forward to talking to you. Okay. Um, how did you start your work in the trafficking field? That's a really good question. So I got a master's degree in public health, and I was working in the U.S. with um, refugees and immigrants when the Trafficking Victim Protection Act came out in 2001. And when they when they gave that made that law, then they put programs out in the community so that we could start identifying victims. And so I just happened to be in the right place at the right time working with foreign victims of traffic, uh, foreign refugees from other countries. And uh, our agency decided that we wanted to work with trafficking victims. So I, we applied and I've been working with trafficking victims ever since. Um, given your experience in the trafficking field, would you say, what would you say is the most common misconception about human trafficking? I think there's a lot of misconceptions, but I think there's two. One that we, the biggest one is that we assume that the biggest form of trafficking is sex trafficking, and in reality, there's more labor trafficking victims in the world today than there are sex trafficking victims. However, both are equally as egregious, and we need to be paying attention to both of them. And the other one is that people can't, uh, don't have any, um, there's nothing that people can do to help. Uh, identify victims and help them. And I think we all can do something. So that's the other one. Okay. Um, why do you think people have these misconceptions about human trafficking? I think it's really hard to understand understand something that you don't look for. I believe that if you look for human trafficking, you find it. And in our society, we aren't looking for vulnerable people. We aren't looking for signs of trafficking. We're trying to live the best lives that we can. And so I think um, we aren't looking, and that's the biggest issue in my mind. Um, which groups do you think are the most likely to be victimized by traffickers? Like, what socioeconomic or other factors would make them more vulnerable? Technically, anybody could be a victim of trafficking or be vulnerable to trafficking because we've seen cases of adults, children, men, women, people from other countries, people from the United States. So anybody can be trafficked. However, there are some vulnerabilities that make people a little bit more vulnerable. Poverty is one. So if you're a mom and you need to take care of your children, you might take a risk and do something that you hope will um, be good for your children. And, and traffickers prey on those vulnerabilities, and they know that if you're desperate, they're going to market that. Also, 
I think uh, runaway and homeless youth are vulnerable for us in America because um, if you don't have anybody, anywhere to go and if you don't understand or if you're desperately looking for love and attachment, you might uh, be vulnerable to a trafficker who's preying on you and understands that you need love and attachment and might actually uh, pretend to provide you that attachment and you become, uh, you'll do anything for him because uh, you think he loves you. So I think we talk about the Maslow's hierarchy of need and I think that's pretty true. If you really, um, if you need to take care of your basic needs, you're going to do anything to get it. And in the same sense that traffickers also prey on that basic need and they identify what you need and then they um, target you for for that specific need. So I think um, poverty being runaway and homeless youth, I think people with intellectual disabilities are often at risk as well because their brain uh, doesn't understand the nuances of someone exploiting them for um, labor or commercial sexual exploitation. And uh, people from other countries are really ex uh, vulnerable as well. They take risk when someone offers them a job in the United States and they truly think they're coming here uh, for a good job and they get here and they're um, not paid what they're owed or often forced into course or situations. So I think those are some of the some some of the basics, but pretty much anybody can be exploited. You talked about people who were brought who are brought from other countries to the United States who are who are exploited. Would you say a lot of people who come here as undocumented immigrants have a greater have a good chance of becoming trafficked due to their legal status in the U.S.? I think that is one vulnerability. Uh, we have a couple of trends in the United States. We have people that come legally and are, uh, they're, uh, that come legally um, on a visa and then end up, once they get here, what they were promised isn't true. And then others that come here undocumented and are afraid and their perpetrators use their immigration status as a coercive technique to keep them in their trafficking situation. In other words, if you leave, I'm going to get you deported. If you leave, I'm going to call the police. And in their country, the police might be corrupt. And so they have an assumption that if they call the police that they're going to be harmed, so they don't call the police. So and being undocumented is a very, very big vulnerability. But both kinds of coming in legally and illegally um, both have some different kinds of vulnerabilities um, that are associated with. But I worked with over 150 foreign national victims of trafficking, and I worked with every single kind. I even worked with um, victims that had uh, computer degrees from a university and they were exploited. And I also worked with people that were illiterate and couldn't uh, read or write in their own language. So the, the spectrum is pretty great. Um, but they didn't understand U.S. labor laws or the U.S. human trafficking laws, and so they did not think that they had a voice or a way to get out of their situation. Okay. What are some of the signs that people in your field of you, what do they, what signs do they use to identify trafficking? When I'm thinking or trying to explain how to identify trafficking, the risk or what to look for, I kind of start out with use your gut instinct. So if you see something that you think might be wrong, you should use your gut and you should report it or you should call the human trafficking hotline, which is 1-888-3737-888. But what we're looking for is we're looking for people who um, are undocumented or don't have control of their um, immigration or legal 
documents. That could be a, um, a, a person without that got their passport taken away by their trafficker. It could be a young girl whose um, driver's license is being held by their perpetrator. So not having control over their identity documents is a big deal. Um, it could be that there's um, they aren't speaking for themselves. So there's somebody next to them. It could be an they could be pretending to be an uncle or a brother, and they're speaking on behalf of the um, victim. And it feels wrong because the victim in our society should be able to speak for themselves. For a youth, it could be that somebody that might be missing for several weeks at a time or even several days at a time and then comes back and has multiple cell phones or has their hair done or wearing a different set of clothes, using different language, different words to communicate where they've been. So gaps in school is a big one. Um, other types of uh, things that we're looking for is ability to come and go as they please. So we would ask, where do you sleep at night? Um, if they say they sleep in their, uh, where they work, that's a big red flag. Uh, where do you like to go for vacation? Or where do you like to go on your day off? Oh, I don't have a day off. Oh, you don't? No, my, my boss won't let me go anywhere because I, they're afraid I will get lost. So we're looking for um, those kind of, of things. Um, obviously, physical and sexual abuse, are, we're looking for those indicators, but not only uh, because a lot of victims don't necessarily get beat in the face, but they have psychological trauma, so they're afraid. So we look at fear. If we ask a question and they're not able to answer it because they're afraid, that's a big flag. So those are some of the things that we look for. You mentioned how uh, some um, victims of trafficking are, like, they have somebody who's answering for them that could be an posing as an uncle or a brother. Would you say that men and, like, there's a disproportionate, like, aspect when it comes to the gender of traffickers? Or would you say it's pretty even when it comes to who, like, if men are tend to be traffickers more than women? I actually don't know how to answer that question. Um, I can give you my opinion, though, because um, I don't know what the facts are, but I think that women are also traffickers. Um, there's mama-sons in the Asian massage parlors. There are... Um, I, I've worked with uh, trafficking victims that worked in domestic servitude, and it was the woman that was the primary abuser. Um, but I also um, think that men are powerful in most places, and so they usually, there's often a power dynamic involved. And so men, I think, are also probably more male trafficking traffickers than women, but I do think that we shouldn't just look for males. Um, I do think even in the commercial sexual exploitation realm, uh, it's confusing for us because uh, there might be a male pimp, but a woman who is his like favorite woman in his uh, that he controls, and she has a sense of power, and so she actually uh, tells the other girls what to do, and so she might get arrested and think that you're, she's a trafficker, when in, in, other, in reality she's being exploited as well. So I think we have to pay really good attention, and we shouldn't assume that it's just a male, but we should also be paying really good attention to the male power dynamics that exist in our society. Would you say that there are not a lot, but there are some cases where parents traffic their own children. And what would you say would be the cause if the, of those instances where children are being trafficked by their parents or their guardians? Again, that's a really good question. And this is one that's taken me a while to be okay with uh, or, or accepting, because I didn't want to accept this for a very long time. 
parents do sell their children, and there's usually a couple reasons. One, it could be for extreme poverty, and they think they're actually doing good for their children. In other words, somebody might come to their village in another country and say, hey, if you give me your child, I'm going to take them to the U.S. and I'm going to put them in school and I'm going to give them a good education and they'll send you money home. And in reality, there was never a good intention of taking the child and giving them a good education. It was always about, um, it was always about exploiting them. So the mom was tricked or dad was tricked. Another time in the U.S., though, we're watching um, this whole opioid epidemic or drug addiction, and unfortunately, there are instances where parents would sell their child um, in order to get money for drugs or sell for drugs, and I think that's one of the hardest things for me to understand because I can't even imagine a mom doing that, but I think drugs do something to your brain and make you not human, so um, it does happen. It could be misguided where a mom has a hope and a dream for a child, or it could be because they have an addiction and they're desperate and their child is a, a, a commodity. Speaking of the use of drugs and its correlation to human trafficking, could you speak a little bit more on how some traffickers use drugs to manipulate or influence their victims into the situation? Yeah, the whole issue of uh, the connection between drugs and human trafficking is is complicated. Trafficking is complicated, but um, abusers might use um, drugs to control their victim. Um, for example, I had one of my cases um, was 12 women that were um, being uh, controlled by a pimp and his his family. And the FBI I found them and freed them, or got them out of their situation, and then I was tasked with taking care of them. And um, one of the women was super feisty and, like, angry and aggressive, and I was like, oh, my gosh, she's challenging. So I was like, how did your perpetrator control you? Because you are not easy. You're, you know, she's, like, tough. She said, oh, they use drugs to keep me down. So, so the perpetrator used drugs to make her compliant. Had another victim that used drugs because she didn't want to feel. And so it can be used in two different ways. It can be used as a mechanism to control and it can be used as a mechanism to protect yourself. And also, you know, if you're addicted, you'll do anything for that next fix. So a perpetrator or a trafficker can say, hey, I'll give you drugs if you do this activity. And so um, drugs play a role in that. It's not in every case, but it does happen. I wanted to I want to focus a little bit on the international aspect of human trafficking. Uh, through the re through my research over the past six months, I found that, according to the um, U.S. Department of State, some of the most common places for trafficking overseas, what common co the, most, the top three countries that have the most cases of human trafficking that the Department of State found was China, Russia, and Belarus. Could you speak on what you think may be the cause for these countries having the most, uh, well, not the most, but some of the highest cases of reported incidents of trafficking? I can give my opinion, um, but I'm not, I, I did work a lot with trafficking that from other countries, but I'm not an expert, but I do have an opinion. So for Belarus, um, I think um, I, I actually worked with some women from Belarus as, as I was helping them when they got out of their trafficking experience, and I asked them about why they chose to come to America, um, and they said that they were working, they had a college degree in their country, and they were working and they weren't making enough to take care of their children. 
One of them was in a domestic violence situation and she ran away from her abuser so she was strong and powerful, but she was left taking care of a child and she had a college degree and she couldn't make ends meet. So uh, recruiters come into Belarus and say um, that, you know, hey, we can get you jobs in Europe or in America as models or as musicians or even as strippers. They might even acknowledge that there's going to be some sort of uh, adult services there. Um, but so they take a risk. And I asked her, I said, why, why did you do that? Like, why did you take that risk? And she said, I was hoping it wouldn't happen to me. So she knew that she might get trafficked. She knew that she might get exploited for commercial sex, but she hoped it wouldn't happen to her. So I think hope is one big thing, that she was willing to take a risk so that she could take care of her child. Uh, so Belarus, there's a lot of women that need don't have enough financial resources and perpetrators can easily get them into Europe. So that's one. China, you know, we, we expect to pay very little for our goods. In fact, I'm holding a microphone right now that was probably made in China, and we want to pay $10 for it or $9 for it or $8 for it. So if you think about it, how if we are um, expecting a cheap commodity, then... China is going to respond by offering it to us. And so people from the rural villages go into the cities and they're put in tenement housing and paid very little and often denied their basic human rights or, or an even a, a fair wage. So I think uh, buying and selling in commodity is a big part of it. We expect cheap labor and they give it to us. So I'm not really sure about Russia. I don't have any kind of knowledge in my head about what that might look like. But those are just two scopes that um, could be influencers of the international um, area. But again, it's about buying and selling and commodity. Earlier, you mentioned the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that was passed back in 2001. And according to the U.S. Department of State, I use this a lot in my their website a lot of my research, they ha have set up a list of three tiers of countries who fully adhere to the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And despite there being roughly between 198 and 210 countries in the world, only 36 countries adhere are tier one countries, and for those who don't know what um, the tiers are, a tier one country is a country who fully adheres and meets the t uh, Trafficking Victim Protection Act standards. What would you say is the c w would help these countries meet those standards, and why are so many other countries not meeting those standards? One of my jobs, one of the things I get to do in my job in the Office on Trafficking in Persons is I actually get to meet with countries from, uh, with people from other countries that are trying to enact the human trafficking standards. And so I think about this a bit. And there's a couple things. If they're a, a poorer country and they don't have the resources, that may be one. Um, there's a lot of corruption. That might be another reason. Or um, change is hard. If you come out and you are attempting to um, enact federal laws and then put money to it, it actually does take a long time. So some of the countries actually just have a hard time because of their financial resources. Others have a hard time because of political will. It's really hard to um, listen to America and, and say um, they think they're doing fine often 
I, I find that a lot of countries that are on the tier two watch list, which means that if they're not really careful, they're going to go down to tier three, which means they might get sanctioned by the U.S. A lot of the tier two countries are completely miffed that the U.S. identifies them that way because they've said they've enacted laws. Uh, they have a shelter. Um, they've done everything that they can to take care of trafficking victims, but they haven't really prosecuted cases. So we find a lot of countries have um, the law, but they haven't arrested perpetrators or convicted perpetrators, or they haven't um, uh, taken care of victims in the way that they're supposed to. So a lot of the times if they're tier two watch list or three, it's because they haven't operationalized the laws that they have enacted. So um, sometimes I feel bad for them because I think they're trying as hard as they can. They just don't have the resources uh, that uh, they need to do what they would like to do. And others, you know, political will is a big deal, which we have a hard time with too sometimes. I don't think we do everything we're supposed to do either. Um, this is this would be my last question about in the international um, cases of human trafficking. Um, it's reported that there's roughly 20 to 30 million cases of trafficking each year. Do you think that number could be overestimated or or underestimated? Not, not under not um overestimated but just underestimated due to the fact due to how hard it is to identify trafficking do you think there could be more cases through in the world or do you think 20 to 30 million would be an accurate number numbers in human trafficking are really stressful because because it's a hidden crime um, we don't have good statistics and so it's really hard to for me to say I think that's a good number I don't know I think there's a lot of vulnerable people in this world, and so there could be more than that. But I also think that we should be careful about um, how we count trafficking victims. I think as long as there's vulnerabilities, as long as there's women that don't get it, uh, uh, do what uh, they wish, I think as long as there's children that are working in the minefields and, and, um, and on fishing boats, I think as long as there's poor children that are getting sold, um, as long as there's women that don't have enough resources to take care of the children, we're going to have trafficking. Um, and women that are, people that are exploited. So I think the number is probably underreported, but I also think that we haven't done a really good job of identifying trafficking. And I do think, if you think about it in the world, how many people work in uh, cobalt that are, you know, feeding our, our um, cell phones um, and that aren't getting paid very well, or in the diamond fields, or in fishing industries, we're not really tracking very well uh, where people who are vulnerable are um, working. And so I think... Um, Numbers are hard for us. That's a really good question, actually. It's one that I don't like answering because I don't have a good answer for it, as you can tell. Um, what jobs would you say, human? What jobs would you say would you find a lot of instances of human trafficking in the U.S. or overseas? The National Human Trafficking Hotline is a. Um, a U.S. hotline that actually my office um, helps uh, support, and uh, it's it's managed by a group called Polaris, and they just came out with. Uh, 25 typologies. So they've identified 25 different specific types of trafficking that they've seen come into the hotline in the United States. And so uh, that, it's broken down into uh, commercial sex, and that could be um, 
you know, street-based prostitution. It could be internet-based prostitution. It could be um, labor. It could be stripping where there was no commercial sex act. Children that are involved, and so it could be peddling or, or um, even street uh, begging is a concern that we have now. Uh, construction, healthcare, um, and what I mean by that is that there's often um, elder homes. They can have women, uh, people that are working in elder homes that have been noticed, known to be trafficked. Um, hotel, hospitality industry, domestic servant in a home. Um, pretty much anywhere where there's a demand for cheap labor, you're going to find trafficking here. Dem a diplomatic Corps here in D.C. is a concern where they bring over people uh, to work in their homes and then they exploit them or don't pay them a fair wage. Massage parlors is a big deal. Um, that we're worried about. There are some instances we think of, of in nail salons. I, I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, factories, fishing industry, uh, anything. Those are some of the big ones uh, from that list of 25, um, if I remember correctly. Uh, my following question is about uh, some numbers that were released by Shared Hope in 2016 and 2017. For those of you who don't know what Shared Hope is, Shared Hope is an NGO that that is a part of the worldwide effort to eradicate um, sex trafficking and modern sla slavery. Um, it operates in the U.S., Nepal, and Jamaica. And according to Shared Hope in 2016, in their state report, their state-to-state -state report card, they reported that the states with the worst rates of human trafficking were California, Texas, Florida, and, and Florida. Um, what would you say are some factors that can contribute to these states, like high instances of human trafficking? That's a good question. Uh, my own opinion is that often um, large urban areas, there's, uh, there's uh, higher rates of trafficking, port cities or border crossings, so all of those have some ports or uh, locations where they uh, can cross into another country. Um, I also think that those, those um, states are doing a better job of identifying victims, and so if you identify a victim, the numbers are higher. Um, so I think they're doing better uh, at it, but I think just sheer numbers, there's a lot more rural, urban, um, and there's better reporting. So those are my basic things um, on why there's more people you're going to find, and you're going to find what you look for. And I think those states have done a better job than others of actually looking for victims. Uh, uh, one follow-up question is in for t the 2016 Shared Hope State-to-State -state Report card, it said that Vermont, Rhode Island, Idaho, and Wyoming had the lowest reported cases of human trafficking in 2016. Do you think that given what um, the states with the highest rates of human trafficking have when it comes to high, like, metropolitan areas. This could contribute to these states' low reported, lowest reported cases and low instances of human trafficking? It could be. I mean, Rhode Island is a really, really small state. They do have a state law that's pretty aggressive, um, but they it's, it's a small state. Um, Idaho and Wyoming, I think, are just coming on board. They're one of the newer states to have state laws, and so um, they're rural. 
doesn't mean there's not trafficking. It means it's harder to find. And I do think that they will start identifying more victims over time since they have an, a law and they're putting systems in place. But there's not a whole lot of task forces or a lot of money that goes into Idaho and Wyoming to take care of victims. You find what you look for. And if there's not a lot of money going into those states, um, especially Idaho and Wyoming, to work on trafficking, then you're not going to find the victims. So I think... Um, size for Vermont and Rhode Island and uh, newness to the issue and location for Idaho and Wyoming is my thoughts. But again, that's just from my own uh, opinion. I'm sure everyone will have, anybody you ask will have a different opinion on uh, why those are so low. I was curious as to why well, Shared Hope, for their 2017, which is their most recent um, state report card, they ranked Tennessee as the number one state in the country for handling cases of human trafficking. Do you, Would you happen to know why that is, what efforts are being made in Tennessee to combat human trafficking? Yeah, Tennessee's done a really good job of taking care of victims. So they have a regional approach. So they have three, they've, they've, this is from what I understand. They've taken their country, uh, their state, and they've divided into three different locations. So they have a Tennessee East, a Tennessee West, and um, uh, another section, I don't know. And they actually have people on staff that work to coordinate efforts. So if you coordinate efforts that's doing two things. One, you're identifying victims because you're looking for them and you're making sure people are talking to each other. If law enforcement doesn't talk to social services, you're going to have a disconnect. And victims need to talk to social service people so that they feel safe, so that they're willing to report a case. So I think Tennessee's, one, enacted good laws or better laws. And two, they've actually put their money where their mouth is and they've hired people to help coordinate efforts. And then they have... Um, created a system of care where victims are able to get the help that they need. So those are my reasons why Tennessee is doing so well. Uh, for my final set of questions, I wanted to focus on something a little more local to me and you. We're both from the DMV area. I am from Virginia. And through my research, I found that Virginia is one of the last, if not the last state to enact laws to combat human trafficking. And according to the Shared Hope State to State Report Card, they had a ranking of a C, which is pretty average. And that was for 2015, I mean, 2016, excuse me. And for 2017, their ranks stayed the same and did not change across the board for any aspect that Shared Hope looked at. And I was wondering, what do you think could be the cause behind Virginia's lackluster approach to human trafficking? That's a really hard question for me because, um, to be honest, I don't know that answer. I have seen, I will, I think you should ask another guest that because I, I don't feel like I can answer that correctly. However, I will say that I do know there's a shelter that's opening up in Northern Virginia in the next two months. I know that there is a task force that is working really hard to kind of grow the network in Northern Virginia to take care of victims. I'm not so sure about the rest of the, the state, um, but I'm going to have to say that I can't answer that question, but I think you should figure out what the answer is. Do you have an answer? I do not. I have I, the mo the extent of my knowledge about the human trafficking approach in Virginia is that Virginia was the last state, or 
was one of the last, it was either the second to last or the last state to enact laws combating human trafficking and enacting a law in 2015. However, according to some of my research, it's sort of like how countries overseas who are in the second tier watch list have approached human trafficking, where while they have laws, they're not really enforcing them. So... I, I could be wrong. That's from what that's what my interpretation was. However, I would have to look that up. I think that's. That, I think you're onto something. I mean, I remember when they passed the Trafficking Victim Protection Act in 2000. It wasn't until 2002 still they started making guidelines and rules on how to actually spend money to help victims. So it did take a little bit of time to get the structure in place. So, you know, on a hopeful thing. Uh, if they only enacted their law in 2015, they should be able to start being a little more proactive in the next year or so. But um, I, I actually don't know. But that's a really good, I think you have a logic, logical response. Thank you very much. And thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's fun to talk to high school students that are intelligent, especially when they're going to be reaching other intelligent high school students. And I think that high schoolers are the future generation and they should be paying attention to vulnerable populations. So don't forget to look beneath the surface so that wherever you are, if you're a kid watching a vulnerable family be uh, have a hardship, you know, just pay attention and maybe you can help them. So uh, thanks for having me. Thank you. If you or someone you know needs help, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. It's toll-free, available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-373-7888. You'll be able to speak with a specially trained anti-trafficking hotline advocate. Help is available in more than 200 languages. Again, the number is one 888 373 7888. Thank you for listening to The Hidden Crime.